And tonight, now, we're, we're going to be in chapter 11. We're going to pray. Chapter 11 is, is the end of the heavy theology, but we need to understand heavy theology. We're going to get into some million-dollar theological words tonight, and we're going to see that uh, Paul is talking about the Jew and the Gentile and God's sovereign plan for all of them. This is heavy stuff. There's a lot to cover, so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for blessing us. And Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Let us behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. Will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, tonight, I receive with meekness the word engrafted, which is able to save my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. And uh, as always, at the end of this, I'm going to try to take about two questions. So be thinking if you have any questions, uh, have it ready, as long as it's a biblical question. And um, I'll do my best to get to it. And maybe just in the teaching tonight, something will pop out at you and you'll, you'll come up with a question during the message. But let's look now. Uh, we're at part 11. Chapter 11, the wild olive tree. The wild olive tree. What in the world is that talking about? Everybody look at your neighbor and say, you. You're the wild olive tree. You just didn't know it. Now, let's dig in. We saw last time that salvation does not and cannot come through works. If we've heard anything in the book of Romans, it is that salvation can never be attained by our own best efforts, right? Our own best efforts can never save us. Now, uh, the Jewish people were convinced of that, that you were saved by doing your best to obey the Mosaic law. They were convinced. That's how you get saved. Um, I heard well-known talk show host, I think I mentioned this last time, Dennis Prager, um, Jewish gentleman who has a lot of good common sense wisdom for, for life and and. Um, I like listening to Dennis until he gets to Christ. And then I got to go, wait, hold on, because he doesn't believe Jesus is Messiah. But I heard him say when a caller called in who was a born-again Christian, and they said, well, I believe that I'm saved by grace through faith. Um, they quoted Romans and Ephesians. And um, Dennis said, well, I don't. I believe that you are saved by your works. Now, there you go. That's where most Jewish people land. But we're going to talk about what's going to happen with the Jewish people uh, in this message tonight, because God has a great plan for them. Um, how are you saved? By belief in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, and confession with your mouth that he is what? Lord. Now, we also saw, uh, once again, Paul's deep and his heavy burden for his own people, the Jewish people. Chapter 11 now begins with a crucial question. Now keep in mind, what he talked about last time, I would die for the Jewish people. He said, I would go to hell for the Jewish people. And he said, God, the Holy Ghost testifies, I'm telling the truth. I would go to hell forever if my people could be saved. Incomprehensible, unfathomable love. I can't wrap my mind around that. But that's what he said. So He's talking again in chapter 11 about the Jewish people. So he says, regarding them, I ask then, did God reject his people? Since they stuck with Moses 
and refuse Christ? Has God rejected his people? And Paul answers his own question. By no means, verse 1. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm saved, so he clearly hasn't rejected all of his people because I'm a Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, and I'm saved. So Paul elaborates on four important issues regarding the Jewish people. Now, this matters, folks. I wouldn't teach you anything that doesn't matter. I, you know, if it's the Bible, it matters. But, I, but I, I, I want you to understand that chapter 11, though, it's about the Jewish people and the Gentiles and God's sovereign plan. There's many things in this chapter that matter in our now, right now, particularly prophetically, what's going on in the world. Okay? So here's the four important issues he wants to bring out about the Jew. The remnant of Israel. The evangelization of the Gentiles. Third, Israel's jealousy because of the success of the Gentile mission. And fourth, the eventual turning of Israel to Christ. That day is coming. Now, Paul points out that the rejection of Israel was partial. Was partial rather than total. Why did God reject them and turn to the Gentiles? Why? Because they rejected who? Jesus. And because they rejected Jesus, the time came when God put them aside and a veil was placed over their eyes. A blindness. We call it judicial blindness. All right? A veil was put over their eyes where the majority of them can't see Christ. The majority of them don't turn to Christ. You go to Israel now, the, the vast majority of the nation, they're not believers in Christ. They're, they're the chosen nation of Israel, but they're not believers in Christ. They're descendants of Abraham, but they are not born-again children of God. The majority of them. Okay? Now, he's letting us know God did not fully blind them all when they rejected Christ. There was a remnant of Jewish believers, and Paul was one of them. Although Israel had indeed been stubborn and obstinate, she had not been completely repudiated as a nation. So if anybody says to you, God's done with Israel, that's passe, that's Old Testament, they don't know their Bible. Because God is anything but done with Israel. As a matter of fact, Israel is God's prophetic timepiece. You want to understand an end-time prophecy. You watch Israel like a hawk, okay? So Paul divides Jews into two classes, a believing minority and a blinded or hardened majority. He wants his brethren to see that God's dealings with the Jews have been fair and perfectly consistent. So let's first talk about the believing minority. Look at what he says in verses two to four. God did not reject his people whom he, what? Foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Verse three. Now this is um, quoting Elijah out of first Kings. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? You're, you're not right. Your depression's getting to you. Now I'm paraphrasing. How many of you ever noticed when you got the blues, things always look worse? 
You believe things are worse if you got the blues, if you're depressed. Uh, you know, what may be gray looks totally black to you. All right? Now, that's what Elijah was doing because he had hit bottom. And he, and he you can hear, I just hear him, oh, I'm the only one left. You ever feel like you're the only one left? Some of you feel that way at work every single day. All right? Now, watch this. And they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? No, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Anytime you feel alone, let me tell you something. There's a believer near enough to hit him with a rock. Even in your place of work, wherever you may be, though you're alone, you're not. And if you are alone regarding human beings, you're never alone regarding him because he always stands with you. Amen? Always. But Elijah was dead wrong because of his depression. It was skewing his view of reality. So now God says something really important. I've got 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed their knee, that haven't caved in to the idolatrous culture. I've got 7,000 that haven't sold out. I've got 7,000 plus you. Now Elijah's complaint against Israel proceeded from the darkest hour of personal depression and in the midst of fearful national apostasy. He was in the middle of an apostasy. That means most believers were defecting from the faith. Folks, we're in the middle right now of a national apostasy. Is that news to you? If it's news to you, let me, let me just give you the, let me, let, me, let me expand a minute. I'll just inform you tonight quickly. Paul said, and the, the spirit tells me distinctly that in the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and teachings of devils. All right? So he said, in the last days, you're going to see an apostasy. That means a renunciation of Christ and the word. We're watching uh, high-profile, well-known Christians apostatize. Come out and say, I don't believe anymore. Jesus said, don't let any of these these things trouble you. Behold, I told you ahead of time that this was going to happen. And so there's nothing new under the sun. In Elijah's day, there was an apostasy. And the mighty victory on Mount Carmel when the fire fell and and, uh, consumed the sacrifice to which Paul refers had dealt a devastating blow to Jezebel's power structure and to the satanic cult of Baal. But that victory had been incomplete The wily Jezebel had not sent all her prophets to Mount Carmel, to the Mount Carmel duel, but had kept in reserve the 400 prophets of the groves. And with these 400, she would counter Elijah's victory. So Elijah realized, I thought that I, I thought I mopped the floor. I thought that I was done. I thought that Baalism was totally eradicated from Israel, but now I find out there's still 400 of these false prophets out there telling lies every day, leading to false gods every day. Okay. Elijah's iron nerve melted. He fled, tired and depressed and discouraged. Elijah blurted something that wasn't true. As we already noted, I'm the only one left. In other words, all of your people have sold out to Baal or been martyred, but I'm the last man standing. God, you can hear the violin, right? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. All right. Okay. God replied with the actual truth of the situation. 
I've reserved for myself 7,000 who haven't sold out to Baal. As it had been in Elijah's day, so it was in Paul's, and it ever has been, and it is now. God never leaves himself without a remnant. There have been times in the history of the church, as it was with Israel, when the lamp of testimony has burned dim. You know, if you went back into the Middle Ages, I can't spend long on this, but if you went back into the Middle Ages, before what we call the Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, attacking the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg and the whole reformation that rocked Europe was begun under Luther in the 1600s. Um, If you had seen the church world before the reformation, it would have looked like the light of the church had been extinguished. The Bible was kept from the common man. The common man couldn't even get a Bible. The Latin Bibles that were in use in that time were were chained to the pulpits. People didn't have a Bible. Before the Reformers rose up, Luther, Tyndale, Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into the language of the common folks and said, I want everybody to be able to read the Bible. I want farmhands out in the fields to be able to read the Bible, read the Word of God. But before the Reformation It was pitch black dark. The Catholic church was totally and thoroughly corrupt, spreading lies, talking about purgatory, bailing the the souls of your lost loved ones out of purgatory, taking indulgences, walking around from from little town to town in in Germany, uh, uh, saying as soon as your coins drop in the bottom of this cup, The souls of your loved ones are going to come flying out of purgatory. The only problem was there is no purgatory, and you can't buy anybody out of hell. But that's what was going on. It was pitch black dark, but it wasn't fully extinguished. God had a remnant. Paul continues, verse 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it, were, if it were, grace would no longer be grace because grace is only grace when works aren't involved. Paul's point is this. God's remnant has always been comprised of those who have accepted the principle of salvation by faith through grace. God's remnant has always come to him on his terms, not their own. Amen? How many of you are so glad you came by grace through faith? Amen? Because that's the only way you're ever going to get saved. Okay? Now, next Paul deals with the blinded majority. All right? So he was talking first about the, uh, the minority that, um, and now he's going to talk about the majority that are blinded. The minority remnant, the blinded majority. The picture that Paul gives of the nation of Israel As a whole, it's sad. He speaks first of what we might call the search, the unavailing search of the nation. What was the search of the Jewish nation? He says, what then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did, the others were hardened. What were they searching for? Everybody say with me, righteousness. That was the search of the Jewish nation, and they didn't find it. 
because they insisted on going via Moses and they rejected Christ, all right? Now the word blinded, note that he says blinded. The word blinded means calloused. It's used in the gospels to describe Pharisees who were angered at the Lord Jesus for healing a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. How dare you, Jesus, heal on the Sabbath day? Not blown over by the fact that there was a miracle, but angered that he did it on the Sabbath. I mean, you talk about blind, dude, that's blind. If I see a miracle happen in front of me, the last thing I'm going to think about is whether or not it happened on a Sunday or a Saturday. I'm just blown away by the miracle, but not if you're blinded. All right. It is used later by Paul to describe unconverted Gentiles who, watch this description, walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Ephesians four seventeen to 18. What a description of the Gentile world. What a description of you and me before we were saved. This is the way we were. We were walking in the vanity of our mind. Our understanding was darkened. We didn't understand a thing about spiritual things. We were alienated from the life of God because we were ignorant of Christ. And we were blind in our hearts. Worst blindness of all. In Paul's day, the passion of the Greek was for knowledge. That's what Greeks wanted, knowledge. All right? Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Thucydides. I mean, you go through all the Greek scholars, all the Greek, look back on the Greek culture, they were all about knowledge. The passion of the Roman was for power. They loved military, dictatorial power. But the passion of the Jew was for righteousness. They missed that national goal by missing Christ, and so they became hardened, except for the remnant. Amen. Now we're get, we're, we're, we've gone out of the shallow. We're going into the deep. Are you ready to go into the deep? All right. Everybody say T-bone steak. Here we go. We're going into the meat of the word. Here we go. All right. Next, Paul speaks of the stupor of the nation. The stupor of the nation. As it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Who did it? God. Eyes so they couldn't see and ears so they couldn't hear. To this very day, and we can say now, to this very day. The nation became so resistant to God's truth that they became the subject of God's judicial hardening. Now, this is serious. A lot of people don't understand this at all. I mean, people that um, are raised in certain kinds of doctrine and teaching literally would reject, would reject this because this is not the God they've been taught about, but they've been taught about the wrong, wrong God because this is what God does. Read Romans 1. We already did it. Remember, he turned them over, gave them up, gave them up, gave them up. Turn them over. To what? To perversion to a depraved mind, and you're talking about their judicial hardening. God does it judicially. Paul had already discussed the judicial hardening of Pharaoh, and Isaiah speaks very solemnly of a similar doom for Israel. Isaiah 29.10, 
He says, for the Lord, this is Isaiah, for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of what, everybody? And who did it? Did the devil do it? No. Who did it? God. Deep sleep. And has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. And he has covered your heads, namely the seers. So here we see God doing something that we don't know much about. But he's saying, you reject me, you reject me, you reject me, and you keep rejecting me. The day will come. Either if you're a nation, I think this has happened to America, I do. Um, it can happen to a nation or an individual where God says, all right, go for it. I'm lifting my hand. I'm, I'm removing the hedge of protection. Go. And you're giving up. You're turned over to your own devices, your own sins. And your sins is what will, are what will rebuke you in the end, the consequences and the reaping of that sin. Now, look what it goes on to say. In the last days, wrote Paul to the Thessalonians, God will deal with apostate what? Christendom. In the same way, the apostasy we just talked about, many departing from the faith. God will deal with apostate Christians the same way. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 11. And for this reason... What reason? They rejected the truth. God will send them. Say it with me, everybody. And who sends it? God. Not the devil. Who do we usually think of as the deceiver or deluder? The devil. But, but here, God sends it. I'm just reading the Bible. Don't get mad at me. I'm reading the Bible. Here it is that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. He says, I'm going to send a strong delusion that they should believe, not a lie, not any old lie, but he uses the article, the, the lie. Um, they would believe the, the lie. So, so this lie stands by itself amongst lies. It's isolated. It's an isolated lie. It's, it's a particularly pungent, powerful Effective lie. What is it? I believe he's talking about the Antichrist. That's just my take on it. As the leprosy renders the flesh insensitive, or if you burn yourself with an iron, you know, you burn yourself and then you can't feel anything where you burned it. He's saying, so the soul of the Jewish nation has been rendered insensitive to Christ. And I know a lot of Gentile folk who have been rendered insensitive to Christ. Um, they used to worship. They used to read their Bible. They used to be in the house of God. But they've gotten out there. They've drifted step by step, inch by inch, incrementally over time. And now they can hear the Bible preach or something said about Jesus. And it just goes, because I've been seared on the inside, S-E-A-R-E-D, seared as with a hot iron. Yeah, backsliders, particularly apostates, because they renounce everything. And they say, I want nothing to do with this Christian stuff. And they walk away. We've seen well-known Christian authors do it. 
We've seen Christian songwriters, well-known, do that. Just say, I'm done. I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe anymore. I'm gone. I'm done. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be afraid. Neither let it be afraid. Uh, He has told us these things would happen. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, what can I do to be sure I never do that? Well, the very fact that you're concerned shows me there's hope for you, right? But you just stay in the word and stay in prayer and stay in fellowship. These people who say, well, you know, during COVID, I kind of got out of going to church. You know, I kind of got into sitting in my PJs with a cup of coffee watching PJ on TV or on the computer. And, and I just kind of out of the habit. Of, but that's okay because I still got my walk with God. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I've been around a while and I know my Bible. Watch this. I've never seen anybody drift from church that also did not drift from God. Now they'll tell you, oh, I don't need the church. I mean, I got, I'm, me and Jesus, we're tight. Well, then you're calling the Bible a liar because the Bible said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some is. But, in, but meet together more and more, particularly as you, see, as you see the day of the Lord approaching and encouraging one another. See, I need you. You need me. We're in this together. I need you. We need to be one anothering one another. Right? Because we need each other. And so to say, well, I don't need the church anymore, that's like my finger saying, I don't need this body anymore. I'm jumping from this hand. Good luck, finger. I'll see you in a few days, and you will be D-E-A-D. It's a fact. We are all members of the body of Christ. We need one another. Okay, now he talked about the stupor of the nation. Now he talks about the snare of the nation. David says, may their table become a snare and a trap. He's talking about the Jewish people now, assembly block and a retribution for them. Well, what does that mean? In the holy place of the tabernacle before there was the temple was a table. And Israel's high and holy privilege was to eat the way they saw it is eat with Jehovah in the tabernacle at his designated table. A privilege not just reserved for priests, but when they came to God with peace offerings for the people as well. So what is he saying? Let their, uh, the table become a snare and a trap. In their feast days, also, Israel sat at a table, so to speak, with Jehovah. This was the highest, happiest, and holiest of all national privileges. It became a snare to the nation when the nation turned away in unbelief because they became more occupied with the ceremony than with the spiritual reality. It was just a ceremony, an empty ritual. Like some people take communion. They don't stop to think about what it means. They just do it because they've always done it. Catholic Church, you look at the Catholic Church, they believe you got to do it to have your sins forgiven and all of that. But they go week after week after week, and it's just a ritual. It doesn't mean anything. There's people that do communion all the time, and it doesn't mean anything. It's just an empty ceremony, but not for those who understand what it means. Because it means His body was given for me with his stripes I'm healed. His blood was shed for me. I am forgiven by it and redeemed and escorted into heaven's gates when my time comes. That's what it's about. And I I preach his coming or I preach his death until he comes. 
okay? So we got to be careful. Nothing about church ever becomes a ritual. We want to know the meaning of it, understand the meaning of it. Now, next, Paul speaks of the servitude of the nation, okay? So he talked about the stupor of the nation. God has blinded them. The snare of the nation, they're caught up in empty ceremony. Next, the servitude of the nation. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. Now listen to this next phrase. And their backs be bent forever. The bowing of the back is a vivid picture of servitude and fear. From generation to generation, this has proven true. The Jew has fled from land to land, ever pursued by the vicious curse of anti-Semitism. And it's rising in America again and around the world again. The national rejection of Christ, the national Jewish rejection of Christ brought in its train untold miseries from age to age. You remember when they were calling out for Pilate to crucify Jesus and turn Barabbas loose. What did they say? His blood be on our heads. Oh my. Oh my. And on our children's children's heads. You know what they did right there? They spoke a curse over themselves. It makes me shudder to quote it. Hitler's death camps have been but one more high tide mark in the sorrows of the wandering Jew. From what is written on the prophetic page of scripture, we know those horrors will not be the last. For still ahead of the nation of Israel are the horrors of the great tribulation, which I believe is just around the prophetic corner. But that's not the end of the story for the Jew. Everybody say amen. Zechariah the prophet wrote that after that final agony, the agony of the tribulation, God will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, what will he pour out? Say it with me. The spirit of grace and of supplications. And look what they will do. They will look upon me whom they did what to? Pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for the firstborn. Why are they going to be mourning? Because they're going to realize suddenly that all these centuries they rejected him, that he really was the son of God. And they're going to be mourning that, that 20 plus centuries went by and our people rejected him. There will be great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family apart. There's going to be a day, this is what we're being told, when the Jews turn in mass to Messiah. Isn't that going to be an incredible day? And in the meantime, God is dealing with the Jews disapprovingly. He says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, be done away with? Totally? Certainly not. But through their fall, watch this, all of you Gentiles, and all of you listening by radio, most of you are Gentiles. Listen to me, Gentiles. Here's the wisdom of God. Through the Jews' fall and blindness to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles. 
Now, if their fall, the Jews' fall, is riches for the world of the Gentiles, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness when they return to Christ? Paul had seen this principle work in city after city of the Roman Empire, where invariably his turning to the Gentiles was followed by deep resentment and jealousy on the part of the Jewish community. What are you doing going and preaching to the Gentiles? They're the offscouring of the earth. You ought to be reaching us, ministering to us. And Paul's answer to them was, I tried. You rejected the message. You rejected the gospel. So I decided I'm going to the Gentiles because they're accepting it and they're being saved. Paul goes on to discuss that if through their stubbornness and their jealousy and their rebellion, the Gentiles have fallen heir to such blessings. What riches are in store for the world when Israel is restored to its rightful position? God has not lost sight of his ultimate goal, which is the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. This is so good. Do you get this, everybody? Paul not only explains what God is doing, he exploits what God is doing. He says in verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, the Jews, and save some of them, if I've got to go to you guys to make them jealous of what you're getting, I'll go to you guys to make them jealous of what you're getting. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. As goes the root, so goes the fruit. Paul hoped that by throwing himself into his great life's work of Gentile world evangelism, some of his Jewish brethren would be saved, even if jealousy is what God used. Paul's reference to the root and the branches introduces the following things we all need to just know as you know your Bible. Abraham is the root that he's talking about. Abraham is the root. Since he was the depository of the promises, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Through your descendants, all the people of the world are going to be blessed, so on and so forth. Uh, Genesis 12, when the promises were made to Abraham, so he's the root. The tree springing from the root is the race of Abraham, the Jewish people. The natural branches that he mentions coming out of the tree are the Jews. Those who first partook of the tree's root and fatness. It was the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. Okay? The engrafted branches that he mentions are the Gentiles placed upon the root, not the trunk or branches. The Gentile doesn't become a natural Jew, nor does he become of Israel, but he enters directly into the blessing promised by God to the Gentiles through Abraham. Amen? Now, while God is acting disapprovingly with Israel, But with the restoration of Israel in mind, he's also acting with the present redemption of the Gentiles in mind. 
Now look at verses 17 through 22. If some of the branches were broken off, who's, who's that? Who was broken off? The Jews. They were broken off. They were broken off, all right? The natural branches is what we're talking about. And you, being a wild olive tree, a Gentile, were grafted in among them. And with them became a partaker of the root and fatness and blessing of the olive tree. Don't boast against the branches. Don't say to Jewish people, na 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 na. Don't boast against the Jewish people. No. Because remember, you don't support the root, the root supports you. Now you're going to say then, well, branches were broken off. The Jewish people were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Paul says, well said, you're right. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you are standing by faith. Then he says, don't be haughty, but fear. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, the Jewish people, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Ponder both. On those who fell, the Jewish people, severity. They've been blinded all this time. But toward you, the Gentile, the goodness of God has been manifested because you have come to Christ through faith by grace. If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Everybody say, whoa. So our whole attitude as saved Gentile believers should be, hey, the Jewish people were the recipients of all the promises. All the writers of the Bible, except one was Gentile or Jewish. Dr. Luke was Gentile. Um, All the prophets were Gentiles. Jesus was, or, or all the prophets were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. You say, what what color was his skin? Olive. Olive skinned. He was Jewish. So we have, so the Jews received all the covenants, all the promises, and then they rejected the key to the fulfillment of all of it. Jesus Christ. So what did God do? The branches were broken off, and you and me, we were grafted in. Wild branches. And now we're partaking of all the promises and all the blessings of the original olive tree. But he's telling us the day's coming when the Jews are going to come back home. Now watch this. We're almost done. Next, Paul shows that God has every intention of ultimately restoring Israel to all her former privileges. Verse 23, and they also, the Jewish people, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and you were, so we were cut out of a wild olive tree, and as wild branches, we were grafted into a natural cultivated olive tree. How much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own original olive tree? If, says Paul, the grafting in, contrary to nature, of the Gentiles has been so fruitful, what will it be when Israel, the natural branches, come back into their own? For I, he says, he quotes now 
I believe this is Isaiah. I do not desire, brethren. No, it's, it's Paul. I'm sorry, it's Paul. For I do not desire, brethren, verses 25 and 26. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. He's talking to Gentiles now. That blindness partially has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Everybody say, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Let me expound on this a little bit. When you see verbiage like this, the fullness of the Gentiles, he's talking about there comes a time in the dealings of God when we note in the Bible sin reaches a fullness level and God releases judgment or God's timing is fully realized and it's time for God to do what he said he would do, the fullness. When he he refers to the fullness of the Gentiles, let me remind you about Luke 21 when this isn't in here, I'm going by memory here, but let me just do it. Luke 21, where Jesus is answering the questions from his disciples. What will be the sign of the end, the sign of the end of the age, and the sign of your return? What will be the signs? Jesus listed the ones we all know about, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, so on and so forth. Uh, We'll be in many different places and all of that. But now, Watch this one. This is a main one. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and trampled down by Gentiles, he said, here's what's going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be trampled down by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, there you have the same verbiage. Fullness of the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. What does that mean? In 70 AD, 20 centuries ago, the Romans invaded Jerusalem under Titus. They leveled the city. They destroyed the temple, the glorious, beautiful temple. They didn't leave one stone standing on another that Jesus predicted would happen. And over a million Jews were slaughtered. This is why Jesus looked at Jerusalem before they killed him and and wept and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. John 1, he came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. He said, because of that, you're going to lose everything. Judgment's going to fall, and it did. And the Jews that survived became what we call the diaspora or the dispersion. And they were dispersed throughout the entire world. And you know who trampled down Jerusalem, who ruled in Jerusalem, who occupied Jerusalem for centuries? Gentiles. Gentiles. Jesus said, you're going to be trampled down by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In other words, there's going to be a time when God's done dealing with the Gentiles. Now watch this. We've been alive to watch for the first time in 20 centuries. Gentiles no longer rule Jerusalem. Jews do. 
That didn't happen for 20 centuries. Could it be? I'm just throwing it out there. The times of the Gentiles are just about up. And we're about to enter into a whole new age. Because do you realize when Jerusalem became the capital and Jewish people began to rule over it and not Gentiles, that was a massive, stunning fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Just throwing that out. That's not in here. This is free. But you read about it in Luke 21. Jesus answers their questions in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. But it's Luke 21 where he talks about the times of the Gentiles. He says, he's quoting, now. this is what I was looking at. He's quoting Isaiah, I believe here. I'm not sure, but it's one of the prophets. The Deliverer, capital D, will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is what God, through Christ, is going to do with the Jewish people. Now here Paul Paul boldly announces that all of Israel would be saved. He describes this as a mystery, a special insight into God's saving plan given to Paul himself by revelation. When the full number of Gentiles have come to Christ and the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, it'll happen. This does not mean that all the Jews are going to be saved. It's like referring to the full number, similar to the full number of Gentiles. There's a timer on all this, God's timing. God has not forsaken the Jew. All things are being orchestrated by his incredible sovereignty. So let's read the last few verses concerning the gospel. They, the Jewish people, are enemies, but it's for your sake, Gentiles, because I've turned to you now with the gospel. But concerning the election... They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, because of God's promise to the fathers, he will never, ever, ever forsake the Jewish people fully. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And Paul ends this stunning section. Next week, he's going to get real practical and he's going to start messing with our stuff. All right? But here he ends with a doxology. He says, I want us to all read this together because he's overwhelmed. I want you to sense this. Paul is overwhelmed with what God has shown him and how he sees the working of God through time and history. So he's going, everybody say, oh. Now he wasn't going, oh. He was going, oh. (laughs) The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Nobody. Or who has first given to him, that he, it shall be repaid to him? Nobody. Now read this last verse with me. Are you ready? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now where is PB, Professor Brendan? Where'd he go? All right. He's probably helping the ladies get ready for the ladies' conference, but 
then I need somebody to run the mic. Let's stand up. Does anybody have a question? Robert, you have a question? Oh, you can run the mic. Come on, Robert. Here. Here you go. And I'm gonna, we're doing great with time, really good with time. So how many of you enjoy this tonight? Isn't this good stuff? All right, if you have a question, raise your hand. Yes, right over here. We'll start left and go left to right. There we go. Hi, I got two. Okay. I'm going to cheat. <laughs> Back to verse uh, 25 and 26 with the coming of the Gentiles. Okay. And because it says he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. He will do. Okay, I, I need to. He will turn godlessness Away, away from, from Jacob, Jacob, right? So is this still supposed to happen? Are we supposed to see the nation of Israel come into Christianity? And how does okay. that plan into the end times? There's debate about this. Are we going to see the Jewish people come to Christ? Uh, boy, there's so much that I could say because Ezekiel 38 and 39, for instance, talk about a war. Um, and this war will result in the Jewish people's eyes being open when God supernaturally intervenes. Ezekiel 38, let me tell you something. If you read Ezekiel 38, 39, he talks about Gog and Magog. You remember those two characters, Gog and Magog? All right. And the prince of Meshach and Tubal. And the prophet Ezekiel is predicting that one day, it has never happened in history, a confederacy of nations are going to come together. They will be rapidly Islamic. They will have in their mind to destroy Israel, to rob it, to take a spoil, to take a prey, and to, and to wipe the Jew off the face of the earth. Their leader will be the land to the uttermost north, and that is Russia. There's no other land to the uttermost north. It's Russia. So Russia will bring together a confederacy of Islamic nations and it will enter into their minds, Ezekiel says, it will enter into their minds to invade Israel. And it says they come down against Israel like a cloud to wipe Israel out. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Some of the nations Ezekiel clearly identifies he says Persia. Well, ancient Persia is the landmass we know now to be Iran and Iraq. Okay? He names Turkey. He names, uh, I, I believe, Afghanistan. He names, there, there's, there's, there's like, I can't remember all of them, six or seven Confederate nations. When we look at these nations today, they are all Israel haters. Ezekiel was prophesied 2,500 years ago. Hello. That's why I say prophecy is one of the great uh, validators that the Bible is the word of God. Because how can a man sitting in the Middle East prophesy 2,500 years ago, watching his sheep walk around and writing on papyrus that there would be these nations gathered today that are all armed to the teeth. Now, here's what's interesting to me. What's just happened in Afghanistan, many different levels of tragedy, catastrophe, um, total bungling of removing Americans 
from Afghanistan and, and letting the Taliban take it again. But here's what you got to know, that they didn't get our weapons out. And the Taliban has now, along with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, have now gained control of billions and billions of America's top weaponry. Billions of dollars worth. Eight Apache helicopters. And you know what that says to me? Because these nations surrounding Afghanistan and Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, they're all connected. They all are, are together. They're all anti-Israel. Now America has given them the weapons to do what Ezekiel said they would do. Now here's where I'm going with that question. I went around the mulberry bush, but here's the deal. Um, Ezekiel 39 shows God intervening by fire coming out of heaven. And it says when God intervenes, I believe it'll be Islam's last stand. Because these will all be Islamic nations. And it says God wipes them out. They're burying the dead for months and months and months. They're burning the weapons for seven years. I believe... Islam deal is dealt a death blow. And it says that the Jewish people realized this was divine intervention. And it says they turned to Christ. Now here's the, the question. When does that war happen? Because it's never happened in history. Nothing like it ever. You'll never find it. So when does it happen? I personally believe, now I could be wrong. I, believe me. This is just what I See, I believe we could wake up tomorrow morning with a headline that Israel has been invaded. I mean, look at it. It's, it's all set up right now. It's there. And we'll read and hear that Israel has been invaded by a vast horde. I could go, I could spend a whole night on the Ezekiel 38 war and barely scratch it. But here's the deal. Um, in answer to your question, if it happens before the rapture, then we will see many Jewish people turn to Christ. We'll see the Jewish nation go, wow, God Almighty delivered us. Okay? So having to move quickly, that's, that's all I can do with that one. Go ahead. Okay. And then I have one more question. Okay. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Mm -hmm. And then the NIV translation, it says, for God has bound everyone all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. That's judicial, that's judicial blindness. I don't understand. What do you mean by committed or bound? It's judicial blindness is what we were talking about because like, uh, and, and different translators will choose different words. I'm not always thrilled. Um, that's why all of you should at least have a Strong's Concordance. So you can look up some of these words. Because translators choose different English words. Uh, and I'm not saying they're wrong. But sometimes some are better than others. When bringing it from Hebrew or Greek into English, you have to find a word, the closest word, to what the word in Greek or Hebrew means. And so bound may not be the best one, but what it's saying is God turned them over to blindness. 
He has put them under judicial blindness so that in the end game, Gentile and Jew will have received mercy. That's what it means. All right. Any other real quick? Any more? Everybody wants to go home. All right. Let's stand together and we'll dismiss. Maybe I'll take a couple of Wednesdays and do the Ezekiel 38 war because it's something. Uh, it is something. The, um, the next two major prophetic things on God's timetable are, I believe, the Ezekiel 38 war and the rapture of the church. Those are the next two big events. And no prophecy has to be fulfilled for either one of them to happen. Father, thank you for your people tonight. I thank you that, Lord, we have been grafted in to the olive tree of the covenants and blessings and the Messiah. Lord, we do not walk around proud because of it, but we are humbled before you that by your sovereignty and grace, you made a place for we Gentiles to be saved. Can we just lift our hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Are you thankful? Come on, tell him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So, Lord, let your face shine upon us. Help us to walk in humility. And, uh, Lord, thank you for health and strength. And, Lord, for helping us to walk with you this week in victory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a blessed week. We'll see you Sunday.